Hello and welcome to this episode 16 of the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week I went over to Bethnal Green to meet up with Jack Self, the editor of The Real Review. Um, the Real Review uh, is the magazine that won launch of the year at the Stack Awards this year, and so as you can imagine I was very excited to speak to him about the ideas that go into making the magazine. And if you've seen The Real Review, you will know that this is very much a magazine of ideas so uh, I mean it's nominally about architecture but really it just uses architecture as a, a jumping off point and then it's much more interested about the systems that are at work so the things that are, are, are working beneath the surface to make things happen in the world and so Jack speaks about that in the context of architecture and, and politics and, and even in magazine publishing itself um, they did a really interesting thing with the mag of, of adding an extra vertical fold um, which completely changes the, the reading experience and he talks about the reasons for wanting to do that and then the real practicalities of how you actually get a printer to, to make that happen. It's a really, really, really interesting interview. Um, this is going to be the last of the podcasts for this year. Um, I might manage to get some of our uh, recordings of events up that we've been doing this year. I'm thinking I might try and do that uh, sort of between Christmas and New Year. Uh, but I also have some boring VAT things to do and other stuff. So it will just it'll depend on time, basically. But for now, um, I hope you enjoy this uh, last one of 2016, uh, our interview with Jack Self from Real Review. Okay, so uh, I'm here in a really beautiful studio in Bethnal Green with Jack Self, the editor of The Real Review. Um, Jack, thank you for speaking to me. Thank you. Um, and congratulations, uh, winner of Launch of the Year at the Stack Awards of the Week. Yes, thank you very much. I mean, it was really uh, an amazing uh, thing to have happened, and, and particularly, I mean, as I, as I mentioned at the time, uh, when you decide to start a new magazine, of course, you start it in the shadow of uh, so many other wonderful publications that are out there. And, and this year particularly, I don't know what was in the water, but there was a huge volume of uh, new magazines that were started. So the competition was very, very tough. So when I saw we weren't in the kind of honorable mentions, I was like, oh, well, you know, we'll try, <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll try for editor of the year next year, you know. But, uh, but no, it was, it was incredible. And it was by unanimous decision as well. I mean, wow. the the so we had um, Stephen Greger from Gym Class, and we had Marta and us from uh, Indicon, and we were at the judges' dinner the night before, and kind of everyone was sort of nervously talking about. So who do you like? What do you like? And yeah, yeah. I mean, like for all four of us, actually, yours was like you know topic. And I think that, that for some reasons that we'll get into um, in a minute, but. Um, I think it's useful, first of all, um, I sort of always get people to say, like, you know, for anyone who's not seen this magazine before, what is it? What do you do? So The Real Review is a quarterly uh, review magazine. It's a partnership between The Real Foundation, which is an architectural institute, a cultural foundation based in London, and OKRM, which are a, a design studio. Um, we share an office, and this is uh, we, we do a lot of, of work across different types of platforms, exhibitions, and and publications of that kind. But I would say this is our kind of most direct uh, collaboration. And for me, it, it's a really kind of wonderful example 
of what happens when a very strong editorial agenda and a very talented design studio uh, combine and really begin to explore what a magazine can be, both in its format and in the way in which it presents content. So in a nutshell, its, its tagline is what it means to live today. And uh, it, what it really does is it takes the format of the review, which we think is a very undervalued form of writing today, and looks for new ways to imagine that. Of course, the review you know, these days can be anything from a kind of five-star Amazon product review through to uh, really kind of lengthy literary review. Um, and there's a lot of room in between in order to explore that. But what the review really does is it looks backward in order to look uh, forward. It takes things which already exist in the world and it tries to make a kind of uh, interesting and um, critical evaluation of them. But it always concludes in a proposition. And for us, you know, there's so many op-ed pieces that are being produced and they're often kind of flash in the pan or they, they have a tendency to be very isolated one-off things what we're trying to do is really build a discourse about the contemporary and and try to analyze what it means to live today and with a view really to proposing what it might mean to live tomorrow mm. uh, so that's that's in a nutshell the, the the publication and and you mentioned the real foundation there as it so i think that I mean, clearly the foundation is very important to what this magazine is, so maybe you could tell us a bit about that as well. Sure. The, the Real Foundation, uh, which stands for the Real Estate Architecture Laboratory, um, is a uh, new or very unusual structure of architectural firm. Uh, normally, architects have to wait until a client comes to them. And of course, architecture is insanely expensive. Um, so when people do approach you, they're, they're filled with trepidation. They're, they're often very nervous about the outcome. And it uh, means that the architect has to wait ready, like many creative professions, we have to wait until the client asks us to do something. They come to you and they say, oh, we need a new bathroom. You've spent the last 10 years doing research into urban infrastructure. And you're like, well, okay, I've got an idea about the bathroom. And this is why the architect's so famous for doing kind of bar napkin sketches, because often that's our way of trying to secure a job, uh, you know, in a very kind of roundabout way. What the real foundation attempts to do is uh, flip the relationship between research and, and architecture so that it, we're research-led. Uh, we basically believe that all uh, forms of architectural inquiry can be manifest in different types of outcomes, whether that's uh, a magazine, uh, a publication, an exhibition, uh, or a piece of architecture. And, and we have a very strict uh, mission statement which sets up the types of values that we believe in and the types of things that we're pursuing. And that is what guides all of our projects. And, and the real review is an attempt to say, well, we think architecture is very relevant and is very important today. And particularly, we have a strong focus on housing and social equality through housing. Um, and, but, but architecture tends to be such an introspective discipline. It's very hard to communicate that to people outside. And so this is really the UK's only uh, general interest architecture magazine in one sense. But in the other sense, I wouldn't want to stress too strongly its connection to architecture because although it ha that's where it's, it's grounded, that's where its feet are, uh, we want to explore any subject that could be of architectural interest, so anything that has a kind of spatial outcome. Uh, and, and you know, so for example, in, in real review number two, there's a review of Uber as a, uh, the algorithm of Uber. And of course, that is something which is invisible, it's intangible, but it has very real spatial outcomes for the way that we design the city, the way that we live in the city. So we would call that kind of architectural condition. And it's very interesting, we think, to get architects to write about non-architectural things, but also to get non-architects to write about architecture, because often, you know, we've 
we've heard a lot in the news recently about the phenomenon of the echo chamber um, and of course uh, when you have architects just writing about architecture you tend to get a feedback loop of everyone saying how wonderful it is which is not always the case. And so you are an architect and you're building projects at the moment as well as making a magazine. I am an architect and uh, before founding the Real Foundation about 18 months ago um, I, I worked for a number of different uh, firms in Europe and in Australia where, where I spent 10 years um, but the Real Foundation has uh, this very clear uh, social agenda uh, which is why we're a foundation. I mean we're a limited company but we have articles of association that govern the types of activities we can do um, and with that in mind we're, we're trying to develop new forms of housing uh, and in the same way that Real Review might look at very uh, invisible or immaterial systems and try to understand their outcome one of the things that we do and the reason we're called the Real Estate Architecture Laboratory is we're going further upstream in the architectural process normally the architect gets called in right at the very end to kind of add a veneer of uh, authenticity and interest and often uh, commercial attraction to uh, a project uh, but we feel that if you treat uh, financial conditions the terms and conditions of finance the way we handle debt in the same way that we would normally treat uh, you know the layout of a floor plan um, these are not uh, complex factors but they're for some reason always excluded from the field of architecture and we think there's a lot of space and possibility when architectural thinking is applied to the way in which we finance and plan architecture as well and in, in that sense we're only really interested in housing um, so we, we do have a, a housing scheme uh, in development at the moment um, but you probably won't see the results of that till about 2019 Right, right, okay. But I mean, the you know, architecture is famous for things moving slowly. I mean, the, a single project can. So the um, the the first story in your first issue is the um, Mie van der Rohe. Mies van der Rohe, yeah. Mies van der Rohe, a project that never even happened. Yeah. And, yeah. and was planned and thought about for years and years. You are quite young, I think. How, do you mind me asking how old you are? Twenty nine. So you're twenty nine. So the your engaging with this system this structure that moves very slowly so even when you say 2019 i imagine mm. that's pretty rapid that's in terms very of very soon yeah uh yeah i mean architecture is a very very slow thing and i think with good reason for a couple of reasons one is uh if you're going to hand over uh you know sometimes millions of pounds to a single person or firm and trust them to deliver something as complex as a building uh, you need to know that, you, that they're in a safe pair of hands and in order to build up that confidence you, you start small and, and you build up over a very long time. Um, if you work as an architect you have to be very patient and I don't see that as being a disadvantage. It does take a very long time to learn all the components of how a building goes together because it's not uh, just a kind of artistic uh, expression and not just a kind of pragmatic uh, activity, you have to be able to hold in your head simultaneously what the uh, historical significance of such a structure might be, the, the minor implications of different aesthetic forms and, and their history, as well as knowing you know, the specific dimensions of elevators, how many meters per second they're able to move and what the capacity there for emptying a building is, how far a door can be from a fire exit, how wide a bedroom can be and so on. And so the, the combination of holding all of this stuff in your head does take a very long time to learn. Uh, and and by comp in comparison, making a print magazine is rapid. 
I think that's one of the things that really attracts me about the idea of publishing. And there is a very important reason why I write and why the Real Foundation also pursues um, this, this type of uh, uh, literature is because we all think we know what we believe and we all think we know what we think, but it's often only when we're having a discussion or having a debate that we begin to realize actually what we think. And so in that sense, writing is very important for clarifying our ideas. Um, but I mean, this, this only really talks about the, let's say, editorial component of Real Review, because the, the other half uh, is really a kind of very um, important uh, exploration of how des the design of the magazine format itself can enforce and reinforce those types of ideas. So go on, so tell us, tell us, because you, you have a big innovation, which is incredibly simple, but also, I mean, really different. I've never seen this done before. One of the early discussions that we had with OKRM was to say, well, you know, part of our interest is in finance and real estate. Can we imagine that a magazine as well has a kind of price per square meter? Um, and if it does, uh, of course, that has a number of implications. First is you have to make a big set of priorities about what you include and what you don't include. This is one of the reasons why a physical mag magazine is so important to me, because on an online publication, it's unlimited, uh, whereas a magazine has a finitude, and therefore a priority has to go into it. But in terms of its physical form, we were talking about the space of the page, and we were talking about the way in which uh, different relationships can be established between image and text, but even the, the, the reader themselves can have a relationship with a kind of three-dimensionality. And what OKRM did, which for me is a kind of genius move, is and in a way, kind of uh, the perfect uh, or the, the most typical idea of what it is we try to do with real as well, um, which is to take a condition which looks uh, extremely banal and make one minor alteration that then becomes unprecedented. And what OKRM did was they took machines that put the fold in a newspaper and they rotated at 90 degrees. And this, this vertical fold, uh, which on the one hand is so simple, uh, but on the other hand, never been seen in a magazine before, creates all sorts of incredible conditions. You know, the first is that you then have a real kind of space to the page. So there is a, a relationship in which you can see either two panels or four panels, um, which changes how image and text relate to each other. It also changes the way in which you read the publication. I mean, this is designed to allow people to read long form text in a very straightforward way. Uh, so OKRM okay, also uh, it created a hierarchy of different text uh, strategies, basically large and small texts, a single and double column per panel, um, so that you can read it in one hand while you're on public transport or in another way. Um, and that's all designed as part of uh, what I think um, really good design should always be, which is mass communication. It's trying to take ideas which sometimes are not that easy and present them in the most accessible and enjoyable and entertaining way. And this is coming, for me, <clears throat> at a time where we're starting to see some independent publishers moving away from this, uh, the dominant form of the big, thick, heavy, independent magazine, which you can see is a, a direct response to the mainstream printing on thinner, cheaper paper, so then independents say, well, no, we don't have to do it like this. But then that becomes the dominant form, and so now it seems that others are coming along and saying, well, hang on, we don't have to print on big, thick, expensive paper because that's so expensive, and actually is it really very user-friendly? So you're printing here on what looks like uh, silk stock, 
and, and your saddle stitch so it's just staples to hold it together. So very, very simple materials that you've elevated with this fold. Well, I think what we're seeing in, in contemporary magazine publication is a sudden and quite rapid move away from a process that had been happening for five years, which was the magazine was becoming more like a book. Not only were magazine frequencies falling because it was harder and harder to sustain a monthly magazine or even a quarterly magazine, people were producing increasingly annuals or biannuals, at which point it's not really a magazine, it's a book. Often they were even hard cover, and they, they really were kind of book-like, and there was a kind of uh, fetishism about that as a design object. Uh, and what we wanted to say was, can we produce something which is beautiful, something which has a real kind of um, uh, uh, incredible uh, quality to it, but which is also ephemeral? Uh, and, and therefore to move away from that idea of it being a book and really insist that it is a magazine. So you're absolutely right. I mean, it is a silk stock. It's a very unique paper. It comes from um, Finland. And it's, uh, it's very unique because although it's extremely lightweight and very, very thin, it has um, a, a very uh, a thick quality to it, which means that you don't get um, see-through, you print through when you print both sides, because that's also very important on such a thin magazine. And it's, it's ephemeral. I mean, it, it damages relatively easily because, of course, it folds very easily. Um, and our printers, uh, Push Print, who are, in my opinion, like one of the, the best printers in, in the UK, also developed a technique specifically to print this magazine because the paper is, is it, because it's so thin, normally you would expect it to be web printed, which is when it comes on a very long roll and is, is run like a newspaper. Uh, and they developed a very special technique to print it on a sheet because otherwise it would not be possible to do this magazine. Really? Wow, okay. So the, you've actually had to do a, a ton of work before you even get to making this thing to get the machines lined up to facilitate it. As in architecture, I mean, this is my only frame of reference, but it's the case with all design activities. It's always a collaboration between many different people. and. What I think is really remarkable about this magazine for me is that um, the designers, in my opinion, amongst the best in the UK, the printer amongst the best in the UK, when you get these, and they're, they're all committed to the project, I mean, they all have an investment in it, uh, if not actually, um, you know, from the point of view of OKRM, we're partners in the project. Uh, in the case of, of, of uh, push print, they wanted to experiment and push their own printing techniques to see if something like this was even possible. And when you have so many committed people working together, each one an expert in their field, I think the product uh, you know, can, can, can ha have the possibility of being quite unique. Um, and that's really what we wanted to do with Real Review. And in that sense, I think project management, which comes from the world of architecture, has been very useful for this because you have, of course, not just the editorial, uh, you have photographic commissions, you have illustration, uh, you have the printing qualities, you have the design aspect, the art direction, which comes from OKRM, or is done in collaboration, uh, and uh, you also have all of the systems that sit behind that. Of course, we're a subscription magazine, which means we don't have advertisements in, in the magazine. We also don't then have a commercial necessity to make the magazine every time kind of splendid and shocking and stand out on the on the shelves, you can resist that commercial uh, drive because, of course, if people subscribe, they've already bought the magazine. Um, and so all you have to do is make sure that the content of the magazine is very, very strong. You don't have to pull out these kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, novelty uh, bells and whistles. Um, so in a way, all of those kind of systems have to unite in order to create something which in the end is, is very modest and is actually very simple, which is just a 
quarterly review. And that's the app, to make it look simple and effortless because of everything that's behind it. And, and this, of course, is not your first foray into print because you, you write in here about uh, Fulcrum, which is the, the student project that you made. And this is all in the context of a, a piece that you write about um, the, the events of 2011 and, mm. the, and the protest. And protest runs through this, mm. this magazine. And you say in this that uh, Fulcrum uh, turned into a magazine of outrageous lists of impossible demands. Mm. And you, you reflect on your own disillusionment with protest as a means of change. Can we see Real Review now as, as your Trojan horse? Is this your other way of trying to affect change? Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, what you're referring to is, first of all, the idea of reviewing a year, uh, I think, is, is the type of thing that we like to do. I mean, the idea that you would take uh, something which, is, which you would not expect to be reviewed at all. I mean, for example, we have a forthcoming review of barbed wire. Uh, and of course, to take something like barbed wire and then review its existence through history becomes a very interesting kind of sociological, historical, political uh, example. In the case of 2011, 2011 for me was really the last time that uh, there was not just a huge amount of popular discontent, but also a lot of popular optimism. Uh, I mean, what we're seeing now with Brexit and Trump is the same, uh, even the same populations who were very disaffected after the 2008 crash, who did not want the austerity regime of 2010. And in 2011, whether it was in the August riots, which was basically what happened when you continue to use seductive uh, advertising uh, on populations who don't have the economic means to buy those objects through to uh, the Arab Spring, uh, the Occupy movement, there was a, a real moment of, uh, of revolt and, and of a great kind of general dissatisfaction. But there was also within it a, a huge amount of optimism and possibility for change. And I wanted to reflect back on that and, and, and consider it again. In the case of, of Fulcrum, uh, you know, after having been involved with the Occupy movement um, quite closely, and having not achieved the demands that were set out, um, I became very disillusioned with protest. I mean, the first protest I ever was involved in was against the war in Iraq in, in 2002. And, uh, you know, that failed to achieve its, its end. And in fact, all of the protests that I've been involved in have never really achieved the, the objects that they set out for. And, and so the question was, is there another way to pursue this? And I think, as I can only speak really as an architect, uh, my ambition is to create low-cost, high-quality housing for as many people as possible. In order to, to do that, you also have to wage a kind of cultural uh, battle, which is to first of all make people aware of, uh, of this as a pressing demand and as, as something that they can ask for and indeed push for. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you know, one of the conditions is raising awareness about uh, um, uh, th those, those conditions. We have already, of course, many publications that will deal with the economic questions of uh, housing inequality or the political questions of changing governance. What we don't have is publications which explain what are the alternative forms of architecture? What do they look like? How do people live in them? How do people respond to them? Not just as they exist now, but as they've existed through history. And how can we learn from those and, and create a kind of common tool set amongst a general audience, not just architects, uh, uh, to see what the possibilities for a different future might be. Well, I find it incredibly inspiring and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where you go with it next. That's very kind of you. Um, issue three will be out in March. 
Um, we've had uh, some difficulty because we've been something of an unexpected success, actually. I, when we, I, sh I should mention, actually, we were funded by Kickstarter. That's how we got going. And, of course, using these types of financial models in order to launch a magazine become very important today, I think. Um, but when we exited the Kickstarter, we had about 800 subscribers. And we, we thought that... <laughs> the total market for a publication like this might be about 1,000, maybe 1,200, something like that. Um, we're now uh, moving up towards 2,000 subscribers and the circulation on the first issue, I mean, we printed 4,000 rather optimistically, I thought, and we've almost sold out of those completely. Uh, and, and of course, we don't have the infrastructural resources in order to handle um, you know, 40 people emailing every day saying, I need to change my postal address. So that's taken a little while to get involved uh, and sorted out. We use a fulfillment company called Newstand now, which is, I believe, the same as Stan. Uh, I love Newstand. They're really great, they're, and you know, they, they just take care of everything. So I think we're now moving into what I consider a very exciting moment where we can really focus on the production of the object itself, on, on the publication, on its content, on its presentation, and all of those infrastructural systems required to deliver it to the largest audience possible are in place. So I'm very optimistic about 2017. That's good to hear. It can't be any worse than this year, right? No, 2016 <laughs> has been an absolute uh, pain in the ass. I mean, it's been such a, a tricky year for uh, so many uh, people. And I think in, you know, in, on reflecting on 2016 and what it means to live today, it, it, it is an increasingly dark time for, for Britain, for Europe, for the West. I mean, actually, issue three, we don't really have themes uh, per se. Um, because the, in a way the thematic is the review format itself. But issue two dealt with this idea of historical deja vu, of, of events which are occurring which you feel powerless to change. Uh, issue three, we're, we're beginning to explore the idea of global civil war, um, which is basically, you know, in, in the 20th century you would have actual uh, uh, world wars between nations and eventually one of them would run out of guns and that would be the end of the war. Now, in a kind of globalized economy and globalized condition, we can't have those types of wars because everyone is too interconnected. And instead, what you get is uh, a combination of, on the one hand, Cold War and proxy wars between the great powers, China, America, Russia, most notably. Um, and then on the other hand, a general condition of what you might call civil war of differing conditions or differing intensities in almost every nation on the planet, ranging from uh, you know actual uh, military conflicts, as with Syria, uh, insurgencies, uh, be they uh, extranational, like in Crimea or Boko Haram in Nigeria, uh, through to you know failed states like Libya, um, and then more what we're seeing in the West, which is um, the rise of the extreme right and and the the breaking down or the non-functioning of democracy between two populations which cohabit the same nation and seem basically irreconcilable. Um, and this, this kind of condition, uh, in a way, is, I think, what will, what will increase in 2017. And so within that context, I think it's very important for those of us who believe in, in democracy, in equality, in equity, and inclusivity uh, in the types of societies we want to live in need to really be very vocal and promote those. And, and so in a very modest and very small way, Real Review is trying to contribute to that uh, discussion. All right. Well, good for you. <laughs> Thanks for speaking. Thank you very much. Cheers.
Okay, that's all for this week. I'd like to say thanks again to Jack for giving me his time. Uh, I really can't wait to read that third issue. The, I think the whole idea of a, a global civil war is really interesting. This idea of how conflict is changing as our world changes. And I also just think that Jack is doing such good stuff in terms of reimagining what publishing can be and, and you know getting away from these preconceived ideas and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he's going to do in 2017 and um, as I said at the beginning we might be back next week uh, it kind of depends on uh, the, the workload of other things uh, it definitely won't be a live interview it might be uh, some of the recordings that we've we've done through the year and um, if we're not back, then uh, you can always uh, search us on SoundCloud or iTunes, just search for Stack Magazines, uh, and you'll find all of our uh, previous episodes on there. Um, and of course, if you're listening to this before midnight on Christmas Eve, you still have the chance to buy Stack for Christmas. Just go to stackmagazines.com forward slash Christmas. You'll see all of our offers on there, and they all come with a special e-card that you can send to your recipient. So you can just send it instantly and you've given a, a Christmas present and um, thank you very much for listening to this podcast uh, today and I, I hope that you've enjoyed previous episodes and we'll be back in 2017 with more